Oftentimes in my life working in TV, you come across a player and you have to font him. For those who aren't familiar with how that works or what that term means, a font is a name bar that appears on the screen when a player is shown on camera. For example, if you see Connor McDavid today, after the, mor- Connor McDavid after the morning skate, you'll see Connor McDavid and underneath nine goals, 12 assists, plus five rating. That's easy, right? Every now and then, not exactly, actually. <laughs> no, every now and then, uh, you'll come across a well-decorated player for an alumni game or something like that, and you have to font him. I'd go blank. Uh, the legends for me were always the hardest. What do you What do you do for Bobby Orr? Two Stanley Cups, his point totals. That just doesn't do it justice. How about Wayne Gretzky, all-time leader in points? Yeah, that works. But most of the time, your producer would tell you just to leave it. Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr, Maurice Richard. Trying to put something under that, trying to give it context, would just take away from the bigger picture. And that's, for me, how it kind of works with Johnny Bauer. His charitable contributions, his availability to the public, are part and parcel of, you know, which, with what he did on, on the ice, which was remarkable. His background as a hockey player, for those that don't know, stellar goalie by the Cleveland Barons in the AHL, won the Stanley Cup four times with the Maple Leafs when he was in his late 30s and early 40s, almost his mid-40s, which is unthinkable to think about when you, you consider it happened in the 60s. Um, he was a two-time Vesna winner, and he was uh, ranked as seventh, the seventh greatest Maple Leaf recently uh, in the top 100, uh, I think it was the Century team that came out two years ago. Of course, he made famous the poke check. I never saw Johnny Bauer play, uh, like many of us. He retired, he retired over a decade before I was born. But what stands out to me is the authentic reaction he elicited whenever he was in public, especially at a Leaf game, when he was shown on, on the screen of the Jumbotron um, and introduced by the PA announcer, the crowd would show true emotion, probably made all that much more pronounced by all the manufactured elements presented throughout the night that you know usually go along with a, a pro game these days. Um, after his death last Christmas, uh, there was a public tribute in early January at the Air Canada Centre, now the Scotiabank Arena. You could, uh, you could see people in the stands uh, that afternoon that you might not see a league game. They probably stopped going to those games long, a long time ago, priced out perhaps. Real fans, uh, some might call them, who grew up watching games at Maple Leaf Gardens, possibly watching Johnny Bauer. And at the end of the ceremony, when they wheeled Bauer's casket out through the tunnel, spontaneously they erupted in in a chant of Go Leafs Go. It wasn't prompted. It was genuine, like Johnny Bauer. I'm Neil Acharya. This is Sports Lit. And I'm pleased to be joined by Nate Sager to discuss Bauer, a legendary life written by Dan Robson, formerly of Sportsnet, now The Athletic. Nate, what were your thoughts on this book? Well, I'm, I'm grateful it's coming out. Uh, with a figure with, such as Johnny Bauer, I think, the, you know, sports stars of his vintage, right, in the middle of the 20th century, the myths tend to, you know, overwhelm, overwhelm the man, like someone who has that kind of name recognition. But at the end of the day, he was, you know, he wasn't just a goaltender. He was a father and a grandfather. Uh, I have the good fortune that his namesake and grandson, John Bauer III, who's now the athletics director at Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. I guess he just has a thing for Nates that aren't spelled the conventional <laughs> way. Uh, he's a great friend of mine, and having met the family a little, you know, you see the character. But, uh, you know, Johnny Bauer here from that era when, you know, a sports 
the hero could almost become like this character out of fiction. Johnny Bauer was one of those, you know, people like you didn't, like you said, you didn't need, need an introduction. I, when you look at sort of the long view of sports in the middle of the 20th century, I always think there's a great parallels between him and and uh, well, the Yankees catcher Yogi Berra. Sure, they were both the black, you know, the backbone of dynastic teams that right at the point, and Dan mentions this in the book, when television began to take over the delivery of sports to mass audiences. One was a catcher, one was a goalie. Uh, those uh, positions in sports, you really require a certain kind of personality, a certain disposition in order to be successful. Uh, both of them were guys who you know, grew up in the Depression, and that led to you know, leaving the formal education system very early in life, but they were obviously both very smart and, and sensitive and had a high degree of emotional intelligence too, but I think where the where the deviation is, you know, the you know Yogi Berra thinks it at best, right? Uh, I didn't say everything I said. Kind of every goofy ball player story kind of got attributed to Yogi Berra. I think Red Smith said it once best once. Uh, Yogi Berra was just this kind of grumpy guy, grumpy New Jersey businessman whose humor was kind of invented by Joe Garagiola. But with Johnny Bauer, he, it was the fact that he was the the genuine article. This down-to-earth uh, pro athlete. I'll, actually, I'll share this one story. I did, obviously didn't, you know, I, I, when, when, it was, when John III was getting married in October 2014, I was doing I was like, what are you saying, Johnny Bauer? He's sitting in front of me in the pew at the, this non-denominational chapel at Concordia University in, Mont- in the West End of Montreal. And it's a Saturday afternoon, so needless to say, the wedding party is getting, got caught up in traffic. And we're all sort of sitting there, and it's a warm day in October. And Johnny Bauer and Nancy Bauer, who's you know obviously almost the co-protagonist in this book, sure. they're sitting there, and you know this, at the time, I guess Johnny Bauer would have been just shy of his 90th birthday, and uh, you know it's pretty warm in this in this building. It's not air conditioned. And Johnny Bauer, I'm feeling a little bit thirsty, and the Justice of the Peace is standing there and goes, "Well, you know, I think there might be some holy water in the back." And Johnny Bauer takes this long pause and goes, "Hmm." Better sprinkle it on that on the leaves. <laughs> uh, so, what year was this? This is in 2014. Yes. It turned out it was actually the anniversary of Johnny Bauer's first game with, with the Maple Leafs, oh, wow. October 11th. So he was this you know sort of down to earth guy. I always think of that one commercial he was in. I think it was for maybe for like Bell Express View or something. And it's just him in front of the gray screen with like his ball cap on. He's just like, don't blame me if you can't find enough hockey on TV. I had 37 shutouts. It was like done in this sort of like anti-comedy way, like right. those old Leon's Furniture commercials. Right. So uh, he's like, who else could he have got to do that? Who else would have pulled, been able to just carry off this deadpan delivery? Uh, but so, anyway, something that, you know, Dan really shows rather than tell throughout this book is it, it was really, it's really about how John and Nancy Bauer made a life and, created you know a great family together and Johnny Bauer really worked at, to just not be that type of public figure that people only saw through his TV persona. I don't know if that's doable with the, the obligations and the schedules that uh, pro athletes are on right now but I think it really captured what it was like to you know be a sort of a family man in that era. I was felt myself hearkening back a lot to uh, Steve Russian, the Sports Illustrated writer, his memoir, Stingray Afternoons, about growing up in Minnesota in the 1960s and 70s, and how hard his dad worked to just try to have the kind of, you know, so he could have the kind of family that he wasn't able to have himself growing up. I think that's something that comes across in in this book. Uh, uh, And obviously there was, you know, it's a very, you know, you learn a lot of things about Johnny Bauer's life that, you know, the 
probably didn't come across in all the coverage of all the media coverage of his life. Whether uh, right. all the things that Dan found out in the book made his job easier or harder, uh, that, I guess that's for him to say when we when we talk about uh, Bauer, a legendary life. This new book from Harper Collins, Canada. Absolutely, Nate. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to having Dan on for a number of reasons, and he'll be in shortly. Um, one of the big ones is not related to the book. It's last time our we had some audio issues. This time we won't have those issues, so we'll hear Dan in perfect audio. You will hear Dan in perfect audio uh, on your car speakers or wherever you're listening to this. And just a little bit of background on Dan. He's uh, the author slash co-author of four bestsellers, uh, including last year, uh, Killer, My Life in Hockey with Doug Gilmore, which we had him on the show for. Um, Quinn, Life of a Hockey Legend. And this book, that's just that, that's just to name a few. He has a couple of others. And this book will certainly be his fifth bestseller. I've already heard comments when I've had it in my hand. Most people will, will say, oh, what's that? And then they say, I can't wait to give this to my dad, or I'd love to give that to my dad, or my dad would love this book. That's usually the response I've gotten. So without further ado, let's bring in Dan Robson. We're back on Sports Lit, Nate. We have a guest that we've, we're familiar with. We, we had him on last year. His name is Dan Robson. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are the author of a new book on Johnny Bauer. Uh, so I'll ask you right off the bat. Um, you, like so many of us, never saw Johnny Bauer play. Um, but what, what compelled you to write this book? Good question. Um, like you said, I, um, I was far too young to ever watch um, a Toronto Maple Leafs Stanley Cup uh, win or watch Johnny um, play in net, but I grew up knowing the legend of him very well. Um, for me, it started actually, I think a lot of uh, hockey fans will have had some interaction with what Johnny Bauer became after his playing days. Um, for me, it was a painting that my aunt gave me when I was probably about um, eight or nine years old. I was a goalie and sort of getting into the game, and um, she gave me this print of a, of a, of, of a painting of Johnny. It was a I forget what number it was, up on 1967, of course, um, there was that many prints of it, and he had signed on it, he had signed it to Danny in the silver pen, and uh, to me it just felt like I was, it was the mo most touching thing to receive something like that, I never had a star sort of acknowledge my presence, even though I hadn't even met him, but it was given to me, and it, um, it's actually on my wall in my office right now, so it's something that I sort of carried through all that time, and for me it was a connection to um, a game I loved, um, but to the, the ongoing, like the history of it, and to and where, where it's heading. And now, I think a lot of people, when they think Johnny Barrow, they're just like, original six, Leafs goalie, they might know the number of Stanley Cups. We don't want to take all the meat off the bone, but when people pick up this book, what do you think, and we don't want to give away too many spoilers, but when people pick this book up, what do you think they're going to be surprised to learn about the, the life of John, Johnny Barrow? Well, I think I think the readers, and I hope the readers will fall into two categories. There'll be the reader who um, was a Johnny Bauer fan or remembers the game or knew of him enough um, to just really have adored him in some way and want to read about him or find him interesting. I think that reader will find a lot of information about Johnny that uh, people didn't know. So basically his entire life before, um, when, he, when he grew up as Johnny Kishken, his entire life up until the moment he changed his name when he got back from World War II, um, I've gone back to sort of retrace and, and piece together, which is something he kept uh, quite hidden throughout his life. So there's a lot of new information about that. Also, um, the information about his his connection to his family and just what life was like throughout his journey to becoming a legend, what it was like for him as a, um, 
as a family man, as a father, as a husband, as a grandfather. I worked really closely with his family on this book. I spent a lot of time with his wife, Nancy. So I think it is a portrait of, um, of a legend, but also very much of a, of a beloved man that I hope that people who have a sense of who he was will get to know him better through it. Uh, for those who don't know the story of Johnny Bauer, I, th I hope that it's sort of a journey, um, an exploration of a life that is completely astounding. Somebody um, that sort of has touched so many parts of Canadian history, not just within hockey, but through um, Canadian history in general, and and sort of is a, in, from my mind, in my mind, sort of a um, sort of this symbol of of overcoming so much in the sort of Canadian spirit, and obviously becoming this iconic person. Um, it's a sort of a remarkable story. So I think that even within the realm of, um, of sports stories, there's people who might know them. Those who don't, I still think it's a, it's a journey that they might enjoy. You talked about the picture you got as a, one of the catalysts, uh, the picture you got from your aunt with Johnny Bauer, which he autographed. Uh, you also interviewed Johnny Bauer when he was uh, alive for a, a long-form piece for Sportsnet, I believe, right? Yeah, I've talked to him a couple of times, just uh, one for a story on um, the greatest lease of all time when they were doing sort of a ranking system, and uh, I was assigned Johnny. So it was sort of a lot longer sort of magazine story just about Johnny today. And then um, for other stories, a couple of times uh, for contemporary players of his era, I was able to chat with them over the phone. And was that, did that lead to you wanting to do this as well? It, absolutely. I mean, in, in speaking with him, um, I mean, we spoke for like an hour one day and just the, um, his engaging personality, he was this lovable man who um, felt so, he, he, was, he was just so generous with his time and so good at um, sort of enthralling you with his sort of uh, tales that could kind of make you laugh and smile and stuff. And so that really made me um, interested in him. I also think it left me with a sense of mystery as well, though, because I, um, you know, I spoke to him about, you know, why he changed his name, and he was very sort of short, and he got uh, um, quite um, defensive about that, and I obviously wasn't going to push him at the time. It wasn't even the point of what we were talking about. I was just interested in right. I could tell that there was um, stuff uh, in his life that, that he'd tried to curate to a certain extent, and so as a journalist, I mean, I'm just naturally curious, so that just sort of, uh, that sort of, that that sort of just uh, interested me. We're going to get into him changing his, his name because I really like that part, and I could tell you were you know very inquisitive about it in the book. There's a, there's a lot of the book is dedicated to that. Um, before that, I want to ask you in terms of longevity. You know, he obviously played into his I think it was mid forties, uh, if I'm not mistaken. What do you attribute his longevity to? And I ask you that because. I mean, I don't think nutrition is on the level it is now. Um, he practiced hard. You talked about him practicing hard in the book, and you also bring up his father, James, who lived till he was 87, and I think he was smoking, yeah. so he must have had good genes. So is it all good genes? What, why, why was Johnny Bauer able to break that mold so early? I mean, the Tom Brady thing. That's <laughs> a, very, a very good question, and I, I think it goes back to a number of things. I think, for sure, there was some sort of... Um, uh, abnormal reality to his makeup that made him an exceptional athlete that was able to perform well into his 40s. And um, I mean, he didn't even perform in the NHL until he was 34 years old. Um, and I think what what we saw, we used, there's something within him for sure that made him just one of the best athletes at Punch and Mac. Um, said a number of times in articles I read that he believed that Johnny was the best uh, athlete in the world at the time. It was obviously somewhat hyperbolic, but it was. Um, if you thought, if you saw some footage of what Johnny did, if you saw him stopping 60 saves and diving for shots and, and just being, you know, this incredible, 
incredibly agile man at that age. Um, there's some credence to that. You can you can you can think you know what he actually was a remarkable athlete. Also, um, he has this, he had a remarkable will, and I think that that plays a lot into it. I, can't, I don't think it's all just physicality. It's he overcame a lot, which is in the book previously to getting there. Um, and one of the things like throughout the time he was playing, he also had arthritis in his hands, and he played this entire um, <laughs> two careers essentially, one in the minors, then one in the in the NHL, like full careers for most people um, with. Um, you know, very painful arthritis in his hand. So I, I think it was a, it was a mix for Johnny of, um, of, of will and of an abnormal ability to play the game. Speaking of the arthritis, I did. I mean, was that common knowledge? Because I didn't know about that, and it was very interesting how he found out at a very young age. He was training for combat in I think England, yes, during World War II, and then got diagnosed with arthritis before he ever was. Johnny Bauer, the hockey yes. player that we know. Like, yeah. that, that's a hard thing for anybody, let alone a <laughs> hockey player in that era. He wasn't even yeah, he wasn't even Johnny Bauer literally at the time. Yes. He was um, Johnny Kishkin at the time. And um, it it wasn't widely known because he didn't really like to complain about it. There were a few articles, like I read most articles I, I could about Johnny, and there was mention of it um, early on in his career. But it wasn't something he continually went back to. Um, he discussed it in his in his earlier autobiography to a certain extent. Um, I access his military records for this um, for this book, and within that, I was able to sort of get the actual description of what was happening in his hands when he was at war, which sent him home, and frankly saved him from combat, which is might be one of the reasons why we're able to um, have a legend like Johnny in our life. Um, he was he was a war veteran, but he was sent home because of this uh, terrible arthritis. In the records, it's really interesting because he immediately, when he gets back, though, is back on the ice in um, at least in Saskatoon right away and starring in the newspaper um, as a sort of he gets back on and starts playing and he's he's playing despite the fact that his hands and this isn't just sort of a, a, a sort of an old tale he told it, there was a medical record of what happened to him um, later on in his career he then had his hands he just he deal with it by having his his hands wrapped extra tight. And he'd often stop the puck by just knocking it down with his glove instead of, and he was criticized for it sometimes for not having good rebound control. But it's, um, I think he just found a way, and not a lot of people really knew what he was going through the entire time he was being the star he was. On that note, Dan, last time you were here, we um, gave you two mugs as a gift. Um, yeah. We have a couple of gifts for you today, but I wanted to give you this one right now. Thank you. So, if you, oh, that, um, maybe you could <laughs> tell our, our readers what that is. That's... Oh, lovely! It's a uh, it's a, uh, Do- it's donation. a donation to the Arthritis Society of Canada in your name, but my address because I have no idea how to do that correctly. So it's a charitable. It's, yeah. a, it's a receipt for income tax purposes. Yes, I appreciate. That. Yes, so, so yeah, tell your accountant you you might want that address changed. But that's a donation to the Arthritis Society of Canada in your name. Um, <laughs> that's good because you know. I figured it was appropriate. Um, it was. Thank you very much. No, no problem. There's more coming. Don't worry, okay. Nate. Nate. Yeah, now what went into, like, what I found out coming, myself coming back to when I was reading this, Dan, was a few, many years ago, I think Stephen Brunt had his Bobby Orr book, and I remember talking to the editor, and she's like, well, he writes like a can- about a Canada that doesn't exist anymore, where there wasn't a lot of opportunity for hockey players, and I'm like, I've never really heard anyone describe the original six era that way. There's, uh, what went into you finding the right lens to capture John and Nancy Bauer's life from the time they met on a golf course in Saskatchewan through the, I guess, 69 years that they were together? It's a good question. I think, um, in terms of a lens, with um, I, I started. I wanted to write this story from the in inside out. So I wanted to come to it not from a person who uh, knew, you know, read about Johnny and knew he's in the Hall of Fame, read his plaque there, and sort of knew the basics of it. I wanted to sort of come in from the beginning and say, 
Um, who knew this man the best, and how do we understand his life that way? How do we understand what motivated him and how he got to where he was? So the lens really was connecting with Nancy and his kids right away, and then coming back out from it, um, understanding um, how he created the life that we now think of legendary, how they together in many ways set out in a journey that was um, unlikely and somehow managed to overcome so many um, so many obstacles to become the person that we saw honored and, and uh, mourned last year um, in a way that touched people differently than most people ever will and most hockey players ever will. It, it, this wasn't just a loss of a a guy who used to play the game. It was like a loss of a guy who had connected with Canadians in a way that few people do. And I just wonder, in all, in all the time you spent with uh, Nancy Bauer, was there one story she told that just made you went like, I can't believe she, that this happened and they, you know, are just telling me this? Well, there's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. She just, um, I'm trying to think of a good story that really, like, shocked me. It was mostly... We laughed a lot, so there was a lot of times when I just got the sense of like what their home life was like and how she'd, you know, there's one story about how he got the um, got a puck in the face and he woke, she woke up next to him. There's well, not next to him. There's a pool of blood on the bed beside her, and then she found basically Johnny downstairs trying to mend himself after this when he was in the minors and been hit by a an errant puck in the um, in, in Pittsburgh, and he just basically lost all the teeth. Just learning about how. Um, poor the medical attention was at the time really shocked me. So there was a lot of great stories like that, a good detail that she really injected into the book. Sorry, Dan, did we cut you off there? No, go ahead. Well, speaking of that, we were going to get you to read that part of oh, the book. Okay. So you'll see sure. that there's a green dot and over into the next page uh, after that. Could you read that for us? And that's exactly about just uh, just like they do on uh, on late night talk shows and introduce the clip. This is exactly what Dan was just describing about uh, a scene in Cleveland during the AHL days when Johnny Bauer came back from a road trip after being hit in the mouth and Nancy's reaction. Okay, so this is uh, chapter seven called The China Wall. Nancy Bauer woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of rustling downstairs in the kitchen. She looked over to her husband's side of the bed. He was gone, but his pillow was drenched with blood. Panicked, she rushed down the stairs to the kitchen where she found Johnny struggling to tend to the terrible wound that had split above his leg. Nancy had seen her husband carry many cuts and bruises home from games he played. He'd had his nose broken a few times and been knocked out now and then. It was commonplace for Johnny to come home with a lump or a cut on his face. Team trainers often kept leeches to place on lumps and bring down the swelling. Up to that point in his career, Johnny had already lost eight teeth. It was always scariest when an injury was close to an eye or the mouth. This was by far the worst she'd seen. Earlier, earlier that evening, in late January 1953, Nancy had been at their house in Cleveland listening to the live broadcast as the Barons played the Hornets two and a half hours away in Pittsburgh. She'd heard reports that Johnny was down on the ice after taking a shot in the face. The puck fired by the Hornets' John McClellan smacked him directly in the mouth. He was nearly knocked unconscious by the blow. The impact drove his teeth through his flesh and knocked out four, a, a four-tooth bridge already, he already had in his mouth. A pivot tooth broke, another front bridge was shattered, one anchor tooth was knocked out, and another was cracked. One of the broken teeth exposed a nerve. The game slammed to a worried halt. Pittsburgh's goalie Gil Mayer rushed across the ice to see if Johnny was okay and helped him with first aid when Bauer was taken to the locker room. Dr. Philip Foe, the Pittsburgh team physician, said it was the worst injury to a goaltender he'd ever treated. To Foe's shock, 
Johnny asked the doctor to let him continue the game. Dr. Faux refused. Plastic surgery was needed to repair his damaged lip. A Barron's front office worker, Floyd Perai, came had come from the stands to get had come in from the stands to get dressed and finish the game. It was one of the game's quirks that a team employee would take over a net if a goalie was hurt. The cost of keeping a second goalie was deemed too expensive, so the Barons' promotional manager would have to do. To Paris's credit, he did some he did sometimes practice with the team, but the single goalie system remains one of the most illogical rules in the game's history. Back in Cleveland, Nancy was still waiting for the news on the radio. She hoped the team would have the sense to take Johnny to a hospital in Pittsburgh. When Nancy got a call saying her husband was traveling home on the team bus that night, she was incredulous. She waited and waited for him up to arrive. Hours later, when he finally walked in the door, Johnny held a filthy-looking towel to his face, covered in blood. Didn't they do anything for you, she asked. The doctor had cleaned up the wound, bandaged it, bandaged it, and given Johnny an aesthetic to freeze up the pain. Nancy tried to get Johnny to go to the hospital, but it was already late, and he planned to get checked out in the morning. She packed up some ice for him to put on the wound, but now, in the middle of the night, his pillow was drenched in blood, and her husband was puttering around the kitchen, trying to mend his own face. That's it. We're going to the hospital. At 3 a.m., she took her husband to get his face fixed. The next morning, Nancy got a call from team management asking why she'd taken Bauer to the hospital. He never should have come home. He never should have come home on the bus. She said he was bleeding so bad. Nancy was told she should have taken Johnny to the hospital affiliated with the Barons instead of the closest one to their house. Well, she said that's just too damn bad. Love it. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of lot of extrapolations upon that. I want to bring up. The, I guess the first thing is he had a lifelong friendship with Gordy Howe, which you uncovered or not uncovered but discussed or wrote about um and i thought of the you know the also the idea of strong women and nancy comes across obviously as a strong woman uh colleen howe as yes. well um that that particular uh, line there too where she just stands up to team management i mean at that time uh that probably wasn't a common thing i'm imagining no, it, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't I think, even called for a player to stand up like the manager back then. <laughs> uh, and I think that's a very, it's a very good thing to pull out of it. I mean, you mentioned Colleen Howe, who was, um, the, you know, a famously strong um, wife in the, in the game and meant a lot to the game because of the way that she stood up to management. Right. Um, Nancy, I think, um, was she was Johnny's protector in many ways. I mean, Johnny was the kind of guy who would never he would mend his own face if he had to. He had, I mean, I, I think about having an exposed nerve there and. Uh, all your teeth basically knocked out, and, and this coming home on the bus with the team. I mean, Johnny was um, was sort of just, you know, he was just happy to be there, and he, he came home and said, yeah, I'm tough to, to, to deal with it. But but Nancy um, kind of called out the, the BS to a certain extent and, and wasn't going to put up with it. And I know, um, you know, when I, when I met her and we spent some good time together, I, I saw that kind of um, fiery wit. I mean, right. I, could, I could picture her when she was explaining that story to me. I could see her. Um, sort of saying at that time, and, and I, you know, she was the matriarch of the family that kept everything in line, as, as so many um, wives of these hockey players were, especially through that era. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, she's a great example of that. Uh, so how much of this book is really her book? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think from the moment that they meet, it becomes, I, I would say it's, it's their book, and then mm. she... Um, I hope is given a sort of a voice and that she definitely uh, played a part in sharing her perspective on their lives. And 
I don't think a lot of um, a lot of the time stories are told from that perspective. So we were able to see what it's like at home when um, Johnny's away on the road for for a couple of weeks at a time, right. and you know, taking her all of their kids to their different sporting events and, and supporting them. And I, I don't think Nancy would want it to be about her because she's a very um, humble person. But I think it's it's the story of their legendary life um, together, not just John, what Johnny accomplished, but what they accomplished. And um, she, she didn't set out for it to be that and telling me the story, but that's sort of what comes through, I think, in that um, she was a remarkable woman as well and played a big role in all of this. Just, uh, I guess, digressing, um, uh, you know, we, we know of Johnny as, you know, the, the lovable grandpa-like figure, uh, the four Stanley Cups he played into middle age, but you go back and also as you know, as you should, you, you go into how he broke into the league with the Rangers. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, we don't really hear a lot about, I, I'm sure there's people out there that probably don't even know he played for the Rangers. Uh, they probably think straight from Cleveland to the Leafs. What I would ask you is, um, who is Charlie Rayner? Yeah. And what, how is he um, significant in, in terms of what Johnny became famous for? So, so Charlie Rayner was a Rangers goalie that was sort of a star and a veteran uh, right before uh, Johnny arrived but in New York City. So he was a Rangers um, goalie. And um, he was there sort of as a veteran coach sort of personality that was still with the team when Johnny arrived. And he's the, basically the guy who taught Johnny Bauer how to poke check. So the, what became the Johnny Bauer poke check and what we all um, you know, know of it, I think most hockey fans today, even if they never even saw it, know Johnny Bauer is famous for his um, his daring poke checks on breakaways, and often when a player was cutting in from the corner and a defenseman was closing in, so basically adding that pressure more and then taking that sort of aggressive attack at players, um, Johnny became known for it. But Charlie was the one who recommended it to him and worked with him in practice, um, poking uh, pucks away over and over and over again, and getting sort of that lightning flash, uh, fast reflex down on that action. So um, really, it, it all goes back to him. And Johnny had to give him credit many times, but he's sort of one of those figures that's forgotten in history, but it was sort of passed on through through Charlie to Johnny. And it's kind of cool, too, and you, you wrote about this. I mean, they had a, a quote-unquote uh, goaltending coach, which was not common, right? Absolutely. I mean, Johnny later on in life became a goaltending coach with the Leafs when he kind of never retired and always stayed in <laughs> Toronto, and he, he became this sort of one of the first goaltending coaches at that time, but it was it was definitely abnormal, especially in a time when you don't even have a spirit goalie. Right. To have a goalie <laughs> hanging around as your goaltending coach uh, was something special, and it was something Johnny appreciated and obviously benefited from greatly. Well, let's go back to some of your previous uh, previous books, uh, and and you talked about injuries earlier. I thought I started thinking about Clint Malarchuk sewing up his own face, but in terms of this book. Um, I guess what, what from your past work was the most relatable, and I'm imagining the Pat Quinn book because it was posthumous. Yeah. Uh, was that, of, of the previous books you've written, and, and you can explain to our listeners some of the, some of the previous work uh, you've done, um, was there anything relatable from some of the previous work, perhaps the Pat Quinn book that you used in this? Yeah, I mean, I think in every experience of going back and, and writing about a life in depth like this, um, there's things I've learned along the way that I think definitely helped inform what I was doing in this process. Uh, previous books I'd written, um, originally the first book I wrote was with Clint Malarchuk about, it's called The Crazy Game, and it's about yes. his horrible injury in which he nearly died on the ice and then uh, suffered from debilitating um, debilitating reality of, of depression and OCD and PTSD right. afterwards. Um, it was a very heavy book um, about mental health and, um, and taking care of yourself and his ability to 
to get through it. So that was sort of a heavy start. And then um, I, I, previously, I worked with, on a fun book of a baseball with Buck Martinez, and then I had a book on uh, Pat Quinn. Right. And Pat Quinn, I think that biography that came um, after he passed uh, was most similar to the process of what I was doing with Johnny, also similar to the era in that John, I mean, we know Pat Quinn is a legendary coach, but he was also a player who um, sort of operated, he was, he was a little bit after Johnny, but they, they crossed paths in the NHL. But also the experience, the experience of um, Pat uh, growing up in Hamilton in a very um, poor climate and sort of creating his own opportunity um, very directly parallels what Johnny uh, did and what Johnny was able to do. And so I found that sort of there, there are two snapshots of Canadian life from different parts of Canada at different times in Canada. Um, but what I was able to, what I hope I was able to explore was um, their their journey through the Canadian experience. In, in the fact though that both of them had passed, was there a, a different way of writing this, in, let's say with the Gilmore or Malarchuk book? Yeah, I work, in this case, in both cases, um, the first place I went was to his friends and family, the people that knew him the most, and at the same time, there are people who are recently mourning the loss of someone they deeply love. So the challenge was very similar, um, and I, the, but the process of working, as I said earlier, from the inside out in that capacity was the same. Um, Johnny died on, uh, I think officially it's listed as Boxing Day, of uh, last year, yes. um, so were you already in the process of uh, of this book at that point, or did it, it did it? When did the kind of the the idea arise to do it, and how soon after his passing did you start on it? The uh, the idea of the book actually be started before Johnny died, but it didn't officially become a, a thing until after he passed. But I remember I was at a book signing for the Doug Gilmore book I had written. Um, with with Doug called Killer, and I was talking with um, my publisher. Um, this is the, at the event in Toronto, and I had said, you know, I think, um, I think there's a book to be written about Johnny Bauer. Right? I was someone I admired, and I had always thought there was more to his life than um, sort of what I what I had read. So we had that discussion, and then obviously sort of the holidays came, and then um, you know Johnny passed, and I thought, oh, that that's you know obviously it was very unfortunate, and I just thought you know it would have been great to got to work with him on something like that, and then um, you know then the publisher came back and said you know remember that discussion like maybe there is something there maybe there is something we can do so uh, we decided to go from it at that point. Now I think it's interesting in terms of the timing. There's a Curtis Joseph uh, biography out at the same time. Yeah. You get the same publisher. Yes. How, how, how do how do they juggle that? Like I mean. Yeah, have two goalie books, lead goalie books out at the same time. Well, I mean, I think that if you're a real, if you're, if, I don't want to, I don't want this book just to be for like Leaf fans, um, but I think if you're a real Leaf fan, you look at these are two uh, different eras in the game and in, in, in your in your team, and so Johnny and, and Curtis actually interacted. Um, uh, Curtis was a was a student at Johnny's goalie school right in Mississauga um, in in his early career, so they actually interacted. and They had great respect for each other and. Um, you know, Johnny had talked about how much he, he loved Curtis. So there is sort of a generational sort of connection between the two. Um, the yeah, I mean, I think I think in the sense that the Curtis's book is a is a memoir. It's in, it's a great book, and it's in revealing a lot about his life for the for the first time. And I think it's for a, sort of a different style. Um, in this case, um, it, it's a different it's a different kind of read and a different process. And um, I think it tells a you know a different story, but about uh, similar topics. I think it reminded me of something uh, John's grandson, John III, yeah. told me. I think when the Air Canada Centre opened, when Curtis Joseph was playing for the Leafs, 
they just automatically gave Johnny Bauer a seat at the end of the Leafs def- defend each each uh, in the first and third periods. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <That's great. laughs> uh, has um, has your uh, just I guess going bigger picture here, not specifically about this book. You've written a lot about hockey. I mean, how is your has your appreciation of hockey changed over time uh, based on all these books and all these different people you've covered in the game? Yeah, I think my appreciation of um, of the history of the game has changed over time. I mean, I I wouldn't say that I am a hockey historian. I don't come from this as sort of uh, from a place of um, being sort of this all knowing, you know, that oracle of hockey knowledge from the past. Um, but for me, it's an, it's it's always a, an exploration. I I am interested in history in general. Um, I'm interested in history of all kinds of sports, like the you know. Uh, baseball and, and I, I get I get drawn into that kind of story and I think so for me even within a book about uh, like Doug Gilmore writing about him it's an era I remember as a child right. watching him play and I remember quite fondly to, to explore that from the perspective of the person who lived it was a fascinating journey for me as a journalist and as a writer so I, I don't know if it's necessarily just hockey I mean I, I love hockey obviously but I think in in terms of uh, getting to to explore interesting stories from different angles it's still yeah it, it excites me well i think that's what the best work comes from people that that attack these stories from a, a broader perspective and I, so i yeah I, I can sense that in the book it wasn't just a hagiography hey, hey or hagiography hey of, yeah. of johnny bauer there was you went to uh prince albert's Saskatchewan. Yes. so to, to take us through uh yeah and i think that's important i mean i want uh, johnny's a man i respect a great deal and then i um but I, I don't. I didn't. I wanted it to be a very honest portrait of Johnny, um, and I wanted it to be something that sort of looked at, you know, um, a journalistic perspective of of this life that everyone adores. So, after I mean, obviously, I, as I said, my first step was working to, with his family to be able to get the real stories of his life. Um, I went to Prince Albert, where he grew up, and tried to piece together what his boyhood was like, because his boyhood was actually some a part of his life that he he talked about sort of in. Um, sort of folksy stories about, you know, like really funny stories about what happened. Um, but there was also a sense of mystery that I think helped set, um, helped create the kind of family man that he was and create the kind of person that he was. All of that, I mean, I think was true of most people, but it was certainly true of Johnny, was formed in those years um, growing up through the Great Depression in Prince Albert. So going back and, and retracing where he would have first skated in oversized skates and learning where he would have played Sandlot baseball and everything like that. I learned where he lived and where he was baptized. That was all very important to me. And uh, So how long did you spend out there? I was, I was there for like a, three days or something like that. I worked very closely with a guy named Ken Guido, who was great, who was from the Prince Albert Historical Society, who I have to give a, a stick tap to in terms of <laughs> their, their attempts to preserve the history of their you know wonderful city. That means a lot to Canadian history, especially Saskatchewan history. Um, and he... He helped me work through the archives of um, historical information that they have, and then also um, I drove around, you know, with him so I could understand the streets a little bit better. Right. Understand, okay, so Johnny was um, lived here, which was now a drug paraphernalia shop, but right. that's where his house was. How would he have got to school? How right. would he have walked to school? Where would he have gone to the movies? So we, we traced their path, and I sort of had him as a guide to. Um, sort of show me because he knows the area he grew up there as well and so he was able to show me everything certainly that was a, a very uh, compelling part of the book because it, it, it allows you to understand the reader to understand a little bit more about his boyhood I really enjoyed that <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm just wondering with all that you know all the time sort of the family how do you 
let that trust factor work for you and not against you. Because I could meet, I could, I know this probably comes with experience, but I can imagine being like, so many times I've written about something and I'm just like, oh man, like they told me all this and yeah. I'm worried I'm going to screw something up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I take, um, I, I think there's a great responsibility in, in being honest as, as a writer, but also being sort of fair and being careful. And I think that initially, everybody always, especially if it's their story or the story of someone they loved, is um, reticent to put it in someone else's hands and to have them share it because we don't really know how it will be formed. But I, I think in this um, story, well, I, I do, I mean, I, I discuss John's relationship with his, um, with his estranged brother and his relationship with his, his mother and the divorce that his family went through, which is stuff that he um, never really spoke about and was quite private about. Uh, for me, I, I try to do it with a great deal of respect, um, but same with, with the overarching mission of I want to understand Johnny as a journalist, and that is a fundamental part of, I believe, of, of um, elements of his life that came later. So um, I, you know, they... They, um, I, I sort of, from the start, said I'm going to go out and, and write this book. Um, honestly, and I don't. I, I think at the end, it still is a, um, a portrait of a, a quite remarkable life. So, he was great friends. We talked about with Gordy Howe. Um, he was also great friends with the chief George Armstrong. From my all the things I've read about George Armstrong in the, in the past, especially from authors, is that he's impossible to get an interview with. Yeah. How did you get into, I think you were at his house, the way it was described, if I'm not mistaken. How did, I, and it was brief. I could tell from the quotes, it wasn't as though he was probably sitting there talking to you for two hours, or maybe he was, but how did you get to talk to George Armstrong? So it's actually, um, it's, it's actually a phone conversation. Okay. Um, but it was, it was I, it, George was great. I actually, but I actually spoke to him for about 50 minutes. Okay. So we had a great chat, but... Um, it was after, it was actually the first day I'd met with Cindy and Barbara Bauer, who are Johnny's uh, daughters, who right. were incredible people who helped uh, a great deal with this product, this book, in the Tim Hortons in Georgetown. So of all places, obviously, I'm meeting Johnny Bauer's family in Tim Hortons, um, and sort of the most Canadian thing I could right. possibly ever be doing. And then I looked down at my phone, and I missed a call from George Armstrong. So like this is just like, like wow, this is, this is my most Canadian moment. Um, <laughs> and then, so I go to the parking lot after a conversation, and then I call him back, and he answers the phone and um, you know I, he, he tells me he's he doesn't want to he's he's calling me to let me know that he's not going to talk to me for the book um, and I said okay like I really obviously respect you calling me and he's a lovely man that was so kind to done that and then we just started talking for about 50 minutes about Johnny so um, I I would record every conversation I wasn't going to use it without permission so we recorded it we had this great conversation which was very vulnerable and I think it, was, it showed a lot about what Johnny meant to his teammates especially a guy like George and so I later on then circled back and spoke to through his family um, and to George via them, and then he agreed to be part of the book. So that was very I was very gracious uh, for, his, for his support and help with that. Were you aware initially when you first tried to get a hold of him that he doesn't talk, or or is that a myth? Maybe he does talk. No, he doesn't talk very often. No, and he um, he's he's very reticent to go to public appearances and sort of be out there. So I know I was aware. I, I had. In getting his contact information, I was informed, you know, it's not likely um, that you're going to... I, 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 worked, I went through his son, who helped okay. me get to him, and he said, like, I don't know if my father's going to chat with you. And that's just, you know, that's his sort of prerogative. But it was that he called. Um, and then when we spoke, it, what, what, I, what I gleaned from it was that he, he wanted to talk about Johnny because Johnny was like a brother to him, which he talks about in the book. And I think the chapter that we talk about is called Brothers. Right. And it was something that meant a lot to him 
um, Johnny's passing hurt him a lot, and it was, um, I think he wanted to talk about it. And so and I think in the end, like, well, I, 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 I understand why he doesn't sort of want to, you know, get right. out there and talk. I think, um, you know, it meant a lot that I was able to share that, and I had the permission to do that. Uh, another, speaking of brothers, another very touching part of the book is Bob Bond, who I yeah. think you might have been with, with him. With I was, him. yes. And yeah. so in that, uh, that part where Bob Bond actually kind of gets emotional, uh, does he not? Does he not shed some tears? Yeah, about? I watched a, um, a big sort of crocodile tear, and it was really emotional for me, actually. We had a, a, um, you know, a good chat over coffee at his, at his house, and, um, you know, he, he was very open and raw and honest about what Johnny meant to what meant to him and it wasn't sort of see one of the things that I try not to do too much in a book like this is rehash the stories that people have already heard or the typical sport stories like yeah Johnny was this and he was a great right. guy yes. and he's always lost off the ice and that kind of stuff there's stuff there, there's <laughs> that that's necessary but you want to try and get to the emotional part of it right and with Bob um he he was just emotional right away because he missed Johnny. He was with Johnny um, before he passed, like in his last event where they were signing yes. autographs, which is such a part of Johnny's legacy. But they were, he was waiting to the very end, signing everything. And Bob had said, you know, we got, you don't have to do this, we got to go. And Johnny was saying, you know, it's, I mean, it, it harkens back to his his quote and the way his philosophy that it's a, it's a privilege on a right, which is now on the least locker room um, uh, wall, which is something that was carried after he passed away. Right. And, um, it, it, but him for, for Bob it was uh, yeah he was he was missing his, his friend and it was a real it was a real honor for me to to talk to him about that because in many ways they're sort of you know they're the, the posters the old photographs or the old stories of, of Bob winning the Stanley Cup and the broken leg and everything but to see them in a, I think this real human reaction uh, as, as friends and brothers meant a lot to me now obviously what were the editorial discussions like with how to handle the whole I guess there are myriad theories about why John Kishkan became Johnny Bauer after he started his career. It's almost like Rashomon. But I want to hear you tell it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a whole cha- I mean, the chapter in the book that's about uh, what's in a name is um, that was, um, I mean, so as a journalist, I, um, I'm driven by, like, mysteries, and I want to know what I can't know, and I want to find this out. So that was something that was obviously... Um, and as you mentioned, you know, sort of throughout the book, the theme of names and what names mean, I think, is really strong. It begins and ends with the concept of a name, and yes. I think um, I meant that intentionally, and in that I think there's so much wrapped into that. And so, for what I found though, when I started writing the book, was that Johnny had told so many stories about his name, and so many stories had come up that clearly could not be true. That it just, I was, I thought, there's such a mystery to this. So I. For example, on his Wikipedia page, I think it might still be there, there's a reference to his his last name being um, Bauer name coming from his mother's maiden name. That's actually attributed to me on oh. Sportsnet because in the story I wrote, he told me that. And I have it, and I, so I go back and I've tried to change it many times on Wikipedia and it keeps getting changed back. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I know the truth now. Um, but that wasn't true. And so then when I found all these things, they also had told the story um, that he'd been adopted he told a story, um, there's, there have been several ones, and he told his family that he just picked the name out of a book, but why Bauer, why specifically Bauer? And then, um, I, as I kept asking more questions, more and more stories came up. And so, the way I have to deal with this is that inevitably, um, we'll never fully know where the name came from, and I, I'm okay with that, and that's, that's fine, because I think that's part of the legend that Johnny created for himself. 
Um, and so in the, I, I spoke with one of his, um, his, his nephew and, and Prince Albert, who sort of helped me through that, who gave me a lesson, a very strong lesson in, um, in how stories evolve and, and sometimes how they're uh, full, of, full of crap and sometimes how they might be full of uh, uh, elements of truth. Any ideas as to why he may have changed his name and then perhaps it ties into his backstory of, of his dad was an immigrant from the Ukraine? Yeah. Right? So one of them, um, his, his sister, Anne Batty, who just turned 100 on Saturday, actually. Happy birthday, um, Anne. She, yeah, she's the, um, uh, the last surviving sibling. Um, as far as Again, we, we talked about genetics earlier. Yeah. 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 Um, and so she, she sort of discussed theories. And I think that one of the main ones was that it, his last name, Kishkan, um, is an Eastern European name. It, he was, his father had come from what was now known as the Ukraine. Um, at the time, it was um, for the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, but he um, he came over, and there was sort of a, 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 there was a prejudice, frankly, towards people of Eastern European descent at that time. That what this I didn't really know about this, frankly, I didn't really know, and it was especially during after World War One. Um, and so one of the theories was that the barons had said, you know, your name's too European is not English enough. We need to change. We're going to change your name because you're going to be a, you're going to be a star. You need to change your name to something different. And so that's the theory that she'd been told and that she carried on. Yeah, yeah and that was something that did happen in sports a lot these yes. days. Uh, I think it was uh, Johnny Pesky, the Red Sox infielder, around the same time. Was, yes. His real name was Pasco, yeah. Paskovich, but they yes. just made a change to Pesky. Yeah, and I mean, there's <laughs> other names. like you know, There's a real poetry to the name Johnny Bauer. So there's sort of like, a, it, it, it's symmetrical. Like you look at the cover of the book, and it, it covers the book. <laughs> and it, it really is, um, right. I think it's a perfect name. And so I kind of became a little bit obsessed with it because I wanted to know how he found the name. So I was going through records trying to find Bauer families at the time, like where he find it. There was one rumor that didn't get into the books. They didn't find it credible enough, but um, that there would have been like a traveling, a famous comedian in Cleveland at the time that he might have like learned, like watching it. To me, it was just an intriguing mystery to, to follow, but it was also, I found, um, his name was misspelled a lot. And that's, you know, and I think the very beginning of the book opens with a misspelling of his name and it carries on. Um, the the first priest who baptized him, um, confirming his age, which was in in question for a long period of time, uh, misspelled his name, and then it was misspelled again and again and again. So there is a definite a legitimacy to that idea. You know, if you it, uh, Kelly Rudy had a book that came out recently, I think it was last April, maybe even last last April, I think, and you just talk about the persecution of Eastern Europeans. I I think his his parents or grandparents were in turn like the. Uh, like the Japanese Canadians were during, and, and, and I had no idea that, that there, you know, there's a Hungarian name, I think. So, um, yeah, I thought of that. And I also thought, uh, Dan, you watched the Maple Leafs in the 80s, right? Uh, in the 90s more. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering, did, did, were you aware of the Gemline? Do you know who the Gemline was? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it was Ed Olchek. Yeah. And it was Gary Lehman. And there was also a guy in that line named Mark Osipovich. Okay. <laughs> Mark Ostapovich is his uh, grandparents were Ukrainian immigrants, and his dad changed his last name to Osborne. So Mark Osborne is there Mark Ostapovich. So I, I thought say that. I was like, that doesn't sound familiar. I, uh, Osborne, yeah, okay. But yeah, that, I, I that's thought, interesting. I, yeah. I thought of that too because and, I mean, his dad changed his name, uh, I think, because he was working in the banking sector and wanted to fit in. But I mean, that could very reasonably be a reason why why Johnny changes. I, I think, and generally, in most cases, it's it's most likely the most obvious reason. And I, I, I so I agree with that 100. percent And I think that that sort of um, obviously um, some names are changed, some weren't throughout. Johnny, the one thing that always that made me 
question to a certain extent was the stories Johnny told about it, but he never actually settled on one. Later on, he sort of would settle on one, but he, when I spoke to him, he'd sort of talk about how there was, he'd hint that you know, there was a breakup in the family, and that's why I changed my name. So he always hinted that there was something more to it, right. and and to me, that, that sort of um, left the, the question lingering, where it wasn't just settled on the name was difficult, or the name wasn't English enough, or wasn't right. play enough. Um, there was something personally that that uh, had affected him that that made him separate his his childhood and his youth from his adulthood. There, there's a there's an underlying story of, of I guess the immigrant experience to yeah. this to this book, uh, and and I was going to ask you about that, but also yeah, I mean, could you expand on his fractured relationship with his mother? Yeah, so uh, Johnny. Um, I think, you know, like like many people I think of as vintage are very, you know, issues like divorce and family breakups are very complicated, difficult things, especially in a small town like Prince Albert. So um, Johnny and his, Johnny's father and mother, um, both both very young immigrants from, from Eastern Europe that, that met right. in the area and, and homesteads, um, married young and, and had nine children, so several children, but they, um, they broke up at a certain point. And Johnny never really discussed that back in, in depth because um, you know she ended up being remarried and right. these are things that are today you kind of go you know this happens all the time it's right. not that big of a deal but it, it was a big deal to in the family I know in speaking with and his sister right. and speaking with uh, other relatives that this was something that fractured the family deeply and it affected Johnny's relationship with his mother right. for the rest of uh, their lives um, and, and the immigrant story yeah so I mean the immigrant story was fascinating for me to to look into because I um, I didn't really know about this, but I mean, Johnny's father uh, comes over um, through uh, through Rotterdam. He, he takes the, the, the boat across um, as it from he's an Eastern European who finds his way to uh, to America, and then eventually finds his way through the promotion of, um, of homesteads at the time, which is you know it's a sort of a history lesson I learned in grade ten, and right. sort of like <laughs> I, I, I passed over, and then I realized how incredible that really was. Like these yeah. these young men and women that were um, going onto this sort of unknown landscape and, and farming, in some cases, very harsh conditions. Um, very, the prairies are not the easiest place. Probably in a lot of cases. Yeah, in a lot of cases. And in Johnny's case, because he got, or not, in Johnny's father's case, he got there late, it was like a very sandy area that wasn't, so there was no, um, there was no money to be made. And just like sort of, I was able to get his homestead record. So getting the details of uh, what he had on the farm, the, the log cabin he built, and then what they did before they moved on. But that was all sort of fascinating to me because it was, the beginning of this legend. It was the beginning of this life that was such a common painting experience, but also a painting experience that I don't think people fully appreciate. Yeah, you're taking me back to when I was a teenager and doing like, you know, work for my dad at a, at a farm and this, you know, farm wife was in her 80s. It's like, there were no good old days. How much do you hope people <laughs> get that from the book without thinking you're like, you know, tearing down like iconography? <laughs> I, I I just I hope that people kind of um, I so people appreciate it more. I mean I think when I look at it I think I didn't appreciate the experience and so when I learned about it and became really interested in it I want that interest to come off and for people to read about it and think this isn't just about sort of um, Johnny put on hockey skates he was a good hockey player he watched hockey in Canada he became a star it's it's really about um, the, the, fam, the, the family circumstances he lived within, the economic circumstances he lived within, and the experience that forged who he became that helped him become a star. And I think that that's not just the story of a hockey legend. It's the story of a lot of 
um, of our grandparents and great grandparents. This is your fifth book, correct? This is my fifth, yeah. So can we travel back and, and, and let's take the journey from uh, Dan Robson, undergrad at Queens, to where you went to Carleton after? Yes. Yeah. And so how does how does a uh, uh, writer, Dan Robson, land his first book and end up with five at, to this point? <laughs> well, the quick, I mean, the Coles notes is, yes, I went to Carleton, I decided to be a teacher, or Queens, decided to be a teacher there, and then went off to uh, Carleton to study journalism. And then out of journalism, I was an intern as you always are, and that's at the Toronto Star. I went to Sportsnet Magazine from there, which right. is where I got to start writing long-form features and really explore writing in a uh, deeper capacity. Right. And through that, after a couple of years there, um, of writing stories that I think, I was always interested in stories that aren't just about sport. Right. I got into it from a sort of long-form journalist uh, ideology from the start. Even right. when I was at a newspaper and the Canadian press, et cetera, I always wanted to write magazine stories. Right. So I wrote a book, I wrote a story about Clint Malarchuk and he uh, opened up his life um, after this horrible accident. Right. And, that turned into a book, and then from there, I just I had more opportunities to continue on. Did you find it? Uh, I mean, from just judging from a lot of the other authors I talked to, it seems like certain athletes they they the the publisher will just want that name to be sold as a book and find an author to attach the story to. Do you you know coming from a, a journalism angle, do you find it's harder to do, do the do the publications come to you and say, hey Dan? Because I'm certain some of these guys probably don't want their story told in that way. Yeah. Um, in the know, real it's, way. <laughs> it's interesting. Like with with a guy like Clint, for example, that story had to be told in the most raw, real way. Because Clint was a, I mean, he's, he's a famous name to right. a certain extent, but not really a name that people are waiting for that book to come out. Right. You really had to sit, show that there was a lot of, um, there was a lot more to the story than hockey. And it was something that a lot of people can connect with. So that we had sold could be sold that to HarperCollins or publisher and we had right. to sort of say this is what it's about. Beyond that, um, I've had opportunities where they would say, you know, we're, we're working on this book, we'd like you to work with this, this um, with Buck Martinez, for example, who I love that experience so much. I, it was a baseball book, but it was, I was able to be a complete nerdy uh, <laughs> uh, baseball guy listening to all these old time stories. So it was a lot of fun. But, um, but then with Quinn, um, that came actually, that offer came like right after Middle Blarchuk came out. And um, it was actually Penguin Random House, and they came to me and said, uh, you know, and they're fantastic, and they said, you know, we think you're um, a writer that can handle this. We'd like to write a bio full biography of, of, of Pat. And that was, a, that was a huge opportunity, and I'm so grateful for it, but it was a frightening, terrifying thing, because all of a sudden I was jumping up from writing a book. First of all, I'd just written a book for the first time, and then writing a biography, which was um, not, it was my own words, it was my own journalism, I mean, everything is my own journalism, but it's within when it's when it's a with book, when it's a ghostwritten book, quote unquote. It's um, sort of it's a collaboration. It's sort of a memoir kind of right. thing. In these cases, it's sort of all on me. So that was my first dive in, into that, and it was a bit a bit frightening. Yeah. yeah. How much time does it take to sort of decompress once you finish the actual project? I'm still decompressing it after <laughs> this one. Um, uh, it's. Uh, it's interesting, actually. I don't realize it because I always tend to just jump into the next project, and um, you know, this time I did find myself somewhat mentally exhausted, um, and certainly last time for a variety of reasons. I was finishing up two books and um, just through going through personal stuff. It was a very my, sort of a numbing time. So you kind of come through, you come through, and you realize what it what it takes from you when you're just kind of living within a, a very a fascinating story, but a very specific story nonstop for a, a short period of time. You when you come up for air. You realize that uh, you're a bit, you know, you're a bit stunned. 
Speaking of uh, new opportunities, uh, which you which you mentioned just previous to, to getting into this, um, you've got a new uh, role with the athletic. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Are you allowed to talk about? Yeah, I've started. I officially started last Monday. So I left Sportsnet where I was a senior writer for uh, seven years, um, which gave me every opportunity I have when I'm talking about writing books and all these opportunities. And they were lovely. Then it was. An, I'm so grateful for that time, but. Um, the Athletic, um, this sort of site that's been obviously uh, growing and doing great journalism, um, had the opportunity to join them as a senior writer and head of features where I'll be doing um, long-form investigative and feature work uh, across Canada with a sort of Canadian focus, but um, I'm hopefully working with the team to build um, some you know some great Canadian journalism out of that. So it's an exciting opportunity for me. Certainly is for for all the all the writers out there, and I think you you you're taking submissions or at least uh, yes. to bring people on, correct? So we're looking. We're always looking for for, for people who are eager to uh, tell great stories. Uh, you seem. Do you, you have to get out of here? No, no I'm fine. I thought you had, uh, Nate. Do you have any uh, any questions? I just wondered. Yeah, I was throwing this out when you were. And I always say readers make writers. What were some of those favorite uh, sports biographies that you've read? That's great. Um, that's true. Uh, I have, there's a lot. And I would say, like, I don't want to be too obvious off the top, but um, Open by oh, Andre Agassi, when you read that, that, that book set the bar for sport memoir. Mm-hmm. And I made the mistake of reading that before I read the <laughs> electrics book. And so you go, well, this can't, yeah. I can't possibly do this. And <laughs> if that's the bar, then, but that's not the bar. I mean, that's the, that's the ceiling. Like that's an incredible book where you can't really reach that. But that book, um, and then just I, I've read. I mean, going back to uh, Ken Dryden's The Game, yeah. uh, Stephen Brunt's uh, Searching for Bobby Orr. Um, there's a lot. You know, said so a lot of David Halverson's work. Um, just to sort of, I have a wide collection at home, and so to think of one that was sort of seminal to what I do would be difficult. But um, it's it's definitely uh, I, I reading is the most part of my uh, writing. I guess is the best way to put that. Um, what's what's the oh, you said you're decompressing right now? Uh, so you're gonna go to the athletic and, and, and start your thing there. But what's next? Any last time you were here, you told us after the fact because you couldn't say it on the mic that you're gonna do with the Bauer book. So is there anything you can't tell us about right now that you want to? No, I can I can sell. I have another project on the go right now. It's not a sports project though, so it's a bit different. I am um, I'm writing a sort of a memoir about my um, my father passed away when I was writing. Quinn. So yes. that was sort of a difficult experience that sort of derailed my life for a little bit. Right. Um, and it's still obviously not derailed, but it's detracted, just right. kind of went a different direction and was you know, it's been a tough journey since. So that I'm writing a book about my relationship with my father and his, he by trade was a um, construction guy. He built houses and um, then created his own company. And I just, I, I'm learning um, sort of who he was through the skills that he did. So I've been working on that with uh, Penguin Random House and that book. Uh, will come out in March 2020. So I'm sort of uh, decompressing and okay. working on that. Very cool. And I just want to say in tribute to your father, uh, I was thinking about that because last time uh, we had you read from your Gilmore book and you had that memory of going to the, the games with him. And uh, every time I pulled this book out, I pulled it out on the train to go to Kingston uh, this weekend and even before that when I had this book, everyone said, I can't wait to give this to my dad. So <laughs> I, I thought you would like that. I do appreciate that. That means a lot. I know my dad would have uh, would have liked to read it too. Um, I am going to give you, uh, last time we gave you two mugs, so here's something for to put into those mugs. I was in Kingston this weekend, and 
You spent some time in Kingston, right? I did. I did. Well, yes, many good years in Kingston. Well, there's oh, Kingston nice. beers here. Thank uh, you. Both made in Kingston. Skeleton Park. Skeleton Park. That's it's a haunted a, beer. You drink I, that and you start seeing ghosts. Are there any bones in it? <laughs> there might be. That's um, that's a real Kingston insider. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Skeleton Park. Lovely. Thank uh, you so much. Hey, no problem, Nate. Is there anything you uh, you wanted to ask before? And, and and of course, if you want to add anything, feel free. Uh, no, but I just I just kind of wish you got some McKinnon Brothers. But I guess we want to put it back. I told you I, yeah, I had it by hand, but it's made in Bath. It's made in Bath. Are both made two in miles Kingston. south of my parents' house, so we wanted to stay on brand. Okay, got to stay on brand. They got a nice plug out of it still, so that's good. Exactly. exactly. Um, anything you'd like to add? No, I just I mean I think with this um, book, I just I, I really hope that um, that people read it, and I I do hope that they. Um, that it's a story that uh, can captivate them. That's what I set out to do as a writer. It's not, in my mind, I didn't set out just to sort of rehash Johnny Bauer stories. One of the, um, when someone posted it on Facebook, sometimes someone said, well, everything's already been said about Johnny, like why would I buy this book? And I guess my point is, that's first of all, that's not true. Right. Um, second of all, well, because I, I, I hope that it's a story um, that I've told in a way that can captivate you and, and maybe um, teach you something about you know, like life and family and, and stuff like that. And I mean, this no bullshit. That's a hundred percent what I what I took from this too. I mean, this book could have been exactly what we know about Johnny Bauer, and I thought there was a lot of great nuggets and a lot of romance to it, and and weaving different type of types of elements and narratives that uh, make it a fantastic read. So uh, check it out, folks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for coming on.